This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libriideaslibrary.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. It is a privilege to be here and it feels a little bit strange to be the person speaking to all of you instead of listening on the other end to the podcast next week. So... Yeah, it really is, is a privilege to have so many people in the room listening to me. Today, I am not sharing that many of my own thoughts. I'm speaking about relationships where grace is in place, which is based on this book, Families Where Grace is in Place, by Jeff van Fonderen. It is in our library, if, if anybody would like to borrow it. Um, and I can really recommend it. It's, it's an excellent book. And the reason that I find it so important to speak about is that our families of origin often affect all of the relationships that we have later in life. So our friendships, our corporate culture, ethnic culture, church relationships, our dating and marriage relationships, all of them are affected by those early relationships that we have as we grow up. And I found this book very helpful for my own relationships and also in helping others to understand their relationships with their parents and how it's affected the relationships that they have every day. So before we dive into to the actual content, I'd like to just give you some food for thought. And this comes in the form of some questions. If you can just hold these questions in your mind, you do not need to answer them. I'm not expecting anybody to you know, share your whole life history here, but please just keep them in mind as we go through the rest of the talk. So first question. What would need to happen for me to be happy? Just give you a moment to think about that. Do other people need to change for that to happen? And thirdly, how am I going to be happy if they don't change? We can return to those at the end. Now, let's start with the creation ideal. We read in Genesis that God created Adam and Eve. He made them in his image, and his plan was that they would mirror his triune relationship. The ideal in that time was a close relationship with God and with each other, and their deepest needs were met by God. They got their value, their identity, and their acceptance from him 
and they knew that their very existence, their very life, depended on him. He had breathed his life into them. They also didn't have any unrealistic expectations of each other because they knew that their deepest needs would be met in God. Unfortunately, we know that things didn't stay this way. The next thing we read about in Genesis is the fall. And we see that as a result of the fall, God is still in the same place, but humans have moved away from him. As a result of their actions, they experience shame, which means that they hide from God. This shame also affects their relationships with each other. They hide first behind leaves, eventually behind masks. And they also start blaming each other and trying to control each other. God points out the consequences of their actions. He says, the man will rule over the woman and the woman's desire will be for her husband. If we have a closer look at that, then the man will rule over the woman sounds like an authoritarian way of control. It's a way for him to meet his own needs and to make her keep quiet about the fact that he's not meeting her needs. But if we have a look at what's said about the female, that her desire will be for her husband. And here, if we look a little bit more deeply, it sounds like a manipulative way of control. Also, a desire to dominate and to make him meet her needs and make him be quiet about the fact that she's not meeting his needs. So in places, if we look at this, we see that they are locked in a battle for control, trying to draw life from each other. So how the book describes fallen relationships is by using an acronym, the CURSE, C-U-R-S-E. And we're going to explore how the curse has affected our relationships. Then we'll have a look at what graceful <coughs> relationships can look like. And lastly, how we can actually get there to that experience of graceful relationships. Just to give you an idea of, of the acronym, the C is for controlling, the U for unforgiving, the R, reactive, the S, shaming, and the E, egocentric. But we'll have a look at each one in more detail. I find this diagram that Jeff and Fondren uses to describe people very helpful. On the inside, we have an empty, needy core. We all have needs. We want to know that we are unconditionally loved and accepted. We want to know that we are valuable, that we are important, capable, and that we are not alone. It can feel very uncomfortable to have this feeling of neediness and emptiness on the inside. So we try to meet those needs in different ways, either with appearances or with behaviors. And these can be neutral, like wearing specific clothes or makeup or owning a specific car or some property, trying to gain knowledge in a specific area, or maybe even the accent that we talk with. We can also have so-called positive behaviors that we put in, pla in place to fill us up. And this can be behaving well so that we fit in with a specific crowd at church or at youth. And then we also have so-called negative behaviors, which can be addictions like drugs or alcohol, which again 
are trying, we're trying to meet our needs with. All of these are attempts to try and cover up our vulnerability. Now, when two people looking like this meet, <clears throat> what happens is that our internal neediness is attracted to that external fullness of the other person. And we think that fullness is going to fill us. After a while, with time, usually this effect wears off, and we realize that our needs are not met. Unfortunately, the next step is not to realize these needs need to be met somewhere else. The next step is usually that we try and control each other to try and meet the needs. And this is where that authoritarian way of trying to make somebody your needs, saying, you will respect me, you will look at me when I'm speaking, um, or you will listen to me when I'm speaking and stop speaking yourself. Or on the other hand, the manipulative uh, way of control, which often uses words like never. You never remember special days with, of mine or special days with me. Our anniversary, our, my birthday, you've forgotten it again. You always speak to other people on the phone in the nicest possible voice. And then you put the phone down and you say, what, to me? So those kinds of ways of speaking, always and never, are often the words that are used to manipulate. And I think I should just say here, <clears throat> although I have up to now said that the male to rule, is ruling over the female, the woman is manipulating, I do want to say it can happen the other way around as well. I think that we get an illustration of the fact that both of these happen in our relationships. It's not like authoritarian belongs exclusively to the male or manipulation belongs exclusively to the female. I'm sure we all know people who do it the other way around. So if we have a closer look at this kind of behavior where we are trying to fill our emptiness with another person, then an honest, although it seems harsh word to describe this, is idolatry. Often in these relationships, we also see unspoken or covert rules or expectations. Now, if the rules are not spoken about, they are very easy to break, and people are often in trouble with each other. This can happen in the area of expectations. For example, if you just imagine a new relationship between two, uh, the guy is looking forward to Saturday because he's going to go and play soccer with his mates. And... The woman is looking forward to quality time together. All week she's been waiting for this opportunity to spend the day with him. And what happens on Saturday is that he goes off with the boys and she's left on her own. And there is obviously a relational clash, some sort of conflict brewing there. But the expectations were not made clear in the beginning. They were assumed. <clears throat> One of the big rules is that problems should not be recognized. You don't talk about problems, because if you do, then you are the problem. It can really change very quickly. So, for example, that conversation about this potential conflict between the new couple, um, the woman might say, I really wanted to spend time with you on Saturday. And the man's response might be, what's wrong with you? Why are you so needy and clingy and insecure? She has become the problem and he's not actually looking at the problem that she has raised. There might also be contradictory rules. For example, 
we are often told, don't get angry, but always tell the truth. Sometimes it's very difficult to do both. Whichever way you turn, you're going to land up breaking one of those rules. Or you could also be in uh, the dilemma of wanting to respect your gran, but knowing that you cannot lie about the stuffing that she's made. And it just really has ruined the meal. But if she's going to ask you, so darling, what did you think about the stuffing and the turkey? And you're in a very awkward situation. Again, whichever way you turn, you're going to break one of those rules. There are many other examples. Um, just to mention a few. Some of those rules could be what's real does not matter. How things appear to be is what's really important. What other people think is most important. Adults are more important than children. Adults know what children feel and want better than the children know themselves. Feelings don't matter, or some feelings are wrong. And there's a different set of rules for adults and children. Questions are disrespectful. So that just gives you an idea of some of these unspoken rules that are not spoken about. Um, we <clears throat> have a friend who works at a university, and he says he can always see the children who've come or the young people who've come from controlling families because they are the ones who are going to act out and explore everything and not demonstrate any self-control but be the ones who stay up all night at parties and get drunk and, and really uh, don't spend the time on, on their studies as, as they should. So that was controlling. Moving on to unforgiving. Unforgiveness hangs over the relationship. It's not possible to clean the slate and begin again. Those words, never and always, are constantly in use. And unforgiveness itself is used to control. If you do not forgive somebody, you can put them in your debt. The unforgiven person then asks, what can I do to put things right between us? And that kind of question constantly hangs over the relationship. Uh, just to give you a small illustration, this is, might seem very trivial, but it's come up many times in our family. Uh, one of our children lost her first tooth while we were away on holiday, and they were all sleeping in a large bedroom with a number of children, and she was so excited about putting her tooth under her pillow and uh, looking forward to getting some money the next day from the tooth mouse. Now, when she woke up the next day, there was no money under her pillow, but there was mon money under somebody else's pillow. And that person you know, said, oh, look, the mouse has given me some money because of your tooth. Isn't that considerate? I'm getting, you know, I've put up with you for so long. I've, I'm now getting the benefit. And this has been brought up again and again. I'm afraid, despite my encouraging my children towards forgiveness, it's, uh, it's something that can get used by her if she feels she'd like to get some payback. So, um, yeah, it may be a small thing like that, but often it's a larger thing and it's something that really has an effect long-term. Moving on to reacting. Reacting is about bad public relations. It's about having the feeling that you're living in a fishbowl. More than two people are involved in the relationship. My reaction to you depends on who's watching. 
So for example, if I have a young child who has a temper tantrum, depending on where that temper tantrum happens, is it going to be at home? Is it at school? Is it at church? Is it in the shop? In those different scenarios, I become very aware of who's watching, and that is what influences how I react, and not the child and the child's needs in that moment. It might also not be people around me at the present moment. It could also be people from my past that are part of our interaction. Uh, they might be, I might overreact to something, and this could be a sign that there's something I need to deal with that God is bringing up to conscious level, a past relationship or situation that I may have just relived in our interaction and that has some sort of hold on me that I need to work through and bring to God. Or it might be that my overreaction comes because I'm reminded of a previous scene in my history with you and that there's some problem that we haven't worked through that we really need to go back and look at. Um, so that's reacting. Moving on to shaming. Shaming is about out loud public humiliation. As a parent, sometimes it's tempting to say, what is wrong with you? You're impossible or you're selfish. You never listen to me. But in that moment, we are shaming our children. And as the shamer, we put ourselves in a position above the shamed. And this results often in an effort of the shamed person to cooperate with us, to avoid humiliation, motivated by fear, and not out of love. If you think back to that diagram with the different rings, what it means <laughs> is that this person or this child is putting some positive behavior into that outer ring, but on the inside, there has been no change. They are just trying to protect themselves with some positive behavior so that you, they do not experience pain. In shaming relationships, intellectual skills are not used for growth in knowledge, but they are used as a protection, as a way of defending ourselves from shame. And this is like an experience of walking on eggshells, being very aware of, I might say something wrong, how can I do mental gymnastics so that I make sure that my words come out right? And you can imagine this leads to high anxiety levels. Emotional skills are often poorly developed. People lose touch with what they actually like and find it very difficult to make decisions. They may withdraw and they may lose a sense of what is an appropriate response to feelings. For example, what do I do with my grief and loss? Is it normal to cry? Is it normal to feel sad? Or am I being selfish if I express that, if I burst out in tears in public? Growing up can be very messy. Children need to make mistakes, and they need to have opportunities to learn through those mistakes so that they can grow in maturity. The irony in shaming families and shaming relationships is that children have to act like miniature adults without getting the opportunities to actually mature. They have to wear masks and pretend to avoid shaming and be over-responsible over without actually having the opportunity to develop those maturity skills. Communication is often coded. So if it is 
selfish to express feelings because you are the problem, then you don't express feelings. You try and express feelings in different ways. You also learn how to understand code. For example, oh, you don't have to go through all that for me means if you really want to please me, you'll do it. Or, oh, you don't think it looks better this way? Could be, I think it would look better this way. Or something like, God helps those who help themselves. Could actually mean, I feel selfish if I ask for help. Or, I don't deserve help. Or something is wrong with me for needing help. The emphasis in shaming relationships is on finding the person to blame. Who is at fault here? Who left this mess? Who is responsible so that we can shame and blame them and thereby control them and demand repentance and get them to behave in a way to meet our needs? In different families and cultures, um, we've thought of some examples. The perfectionist dad has an effect on his children and they might not feel the freedom to actually try something out, to try something new, because they feel like they're taking a risk to be ridiculed. Sometimes we can shame children for accidents. They are just, you know, young, clumsy sometimes. They fall over their feet and spill the milk. And if we are shaming them for that, we actually have the opposite effect that we want to on them. <clears throat> they don't learn to control themselves better. <clears throat> Instead, they just become nervous around us. And sometimes we may also have children who are different to the rest of us in the family. It might be an intellectual family with one really sporty child or uh, an intellectual family with a very dramatic child. And that child can sometimes be shamed just for who they are because they're just so different. Um, I'm aware of the German culture because that is one of my uh, main cultures. And we have a great emphasis on efficiency, which can be positive, but it can also shame relational people. And sometimes in churches which are performance-oriented or driven, there is a risk that exposure to humiliation comes along with offering to do some service in the church. So people might not put up their hands to play the piano because they feel that that's a risk. They might be ridiculed or humiliated or just made to feel not good enough. And then lastly, egocentricity. Because life is all about me. I am at the center of my life. You're all in this environment around me. And if you make a comment about my work, I feel like you're making a comment about my value. If you make a comment about my children's behavior, I might feel that you're, you're saying I'm a bad parent. And if you make a comment about this talk, let me just remind you, this talk is based on this book. <laughs> a very strange thing I noticed is that this is a more current or a newer copy. And the older copy I have in South Africa at home, he has his email in there, so I could always refer people to that. But he obviously became wiser. <clears throat> so as a result of this egocentricity, coded communication, again, is reinforced. 
We say things in code, but we also listen in code. We listen crookedly. We become touchy and sensitive and take things personally, and we become offended easily. For example, I don't agree with you in a very reasonable way can become what we hear. You're stupid for thinking that way. Somehow the message changes between our ears and our minds. And communication as a result can become superficial and intellectual to avoid any confrontations. There's also <clears throat> people, on the other hand, who, who like to bring the conversation back to themselves, to meet their needs, to feel that they are valuable and needed. And uh, this reminds me of an extreme joke where you know, somebody will say, now let's talk about you. What do you think about me? And there we are, back at them being at the center of the conversation. <clears throat> so let's be real now. A Christian's life looks different. We, have, we are living the victorious life. Now, unfortunately, I think most of us in the room, if not all of us, can recognize the curse having an influence on our lives and on the people around us. And the challenge is that we as Christians are not called to live out the curse in a more spiritual way. We are not called to use the Bible and Bible verses like um, that handy one about husbands loving their wives as God loves the church and giving their lives. Hey, Torsten. Um, <laughs> of using all those Bible verses to control other people. Or we could try prayer. We could try prayer to try and control other people. You know, that public prayer of, oh, Lord Jesus, please will you help my child to control himself so that I can be nice. And what we are doing there is not praying to God. We are just trying to manipulate our children. Controlling other spiritualities so that I look good and so that they appear good is not what it's about. What I'm actually teaching people, teaching my children, if I try and control their spirituality in this way, is I'm teaching them to seek their life in the outer ring instead of addressing their deepest needs with God. And that is what those positive those plus signs in that circle are about. They might look positive, but actually they're still in the wrong place. We're not suddenly more spiritual if we look like we are more spiritual. This raises the question, who is responsible for my spirituality? Who is responsible for my relationship with God? And each person is responsible for his own. I think that's pretty clear when we talk about ourselves. But other people are also responsible for theirs. We cannot take responsibility. An example that Jeff von Fonderen uses in his book is of a couple who married. Um, it seemed that they were both Christians. And then after a few years, the husband stopped going to church. But the wife, instead of telling people, well, he's just not interested. He doesn't want to come to church, said, He's having an extended quiet time <laughs> because she believed that if she 
said something like that. People would believe that she was spiritual because she had married a Christian guy who was really spiritual. But actually, by doing that, she put up a barrier between him and the church, and they couldn't reach out to him and actually know what was really going on and find out, have a relationship with him that was real and honest and perhaps even be used by God to draw him back. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, it is actually possible for us to be in a good relationship with God. God's power can change me from the inside out, and I can guide others on the way of spiritual transformation while relying on him to do his work in me and in them. This means I don't need to control others so that I look good. It means they are responsible for the choices and for the consequences of their choices. It does mean that I do still care, and I do still pray for them, but I don't exhaust myself making them behave in ways that make me look good or them look good. So what does a graceful relationship look like then, in contrast, if we have a look at graceful relationships under the microscope? In terms of the first area of controlling others, we can bring ourselves under God's control. I admit that I am a so-called control freak, so I'm very familiar with the anxiety that comes with feeling like things are getting out of control and the inner anger I feel when things are out of control <laughs> for none of my doing, but they just suddenly are. So it's a real daily reminder to myself that God is in control of my life and that I can experience the freedom of finding my value and identity and acceptance in him. I do not need to be superwoman. I do not need to keep everything under control. I need to remind myself that what is real is more important than what appears to be. So it doesn't matter if I appear to have everything under control. What is real is what's going on in the inside. And if I am open to being helped, then God can demonstrate his love for me through the help and care of others that can support me and love me. I also find it helpful to remember that life is a process. It's a journey. It's not a once-off event. Even if something happens where I fail and I try and control things and be superwoman, or if my children misbehave and I feel that that's a reflection on me, this event does not define me. I'm on a journey with God, and he is changing me so that I can more and more find life in him rather than trying to find life in my outer circle. So that's the area of control. If we move on to unforgiveness, then unforgiveness is replaced by confession and forgiveness. And I'm very aware of the fact that confession and forgiveness are such big topics. There have been books written, there have been many, many lectures given, but I'll try and just give a few points that I think are important. So yes, with confession and forgiveness, it is possible to clean the slate for me and for others in relationship with me. I can admit or confess my own specific sin 
and I can repent. I don't need to be perfect. I don't need to, tr to try and be perfect. God forgives me freely, and I don't need to perform to get that forgiveness. It's given to me through his performance. And as a result, I can extend forgiveness to others. And part of this journey is also just realizing how much forgiveness I need and how often I turn to other sources instead of him to give me life. As a result, relationships can be restored, but I don't want to be flippant about this. It's not an easy process, especially when there's been some abuse. And reconciliation is only possible when there is true repentance. And true repentance involves naming of that specific sin. It involves an awareness of the pain that that sin has caused and a turning away from the sin so that we try not to sin again. I think it's also important to mention that forgiveness and repentance can happen independently of each other. So the person who has sinned can repent, whether or not the person who was sinned against forgives. And the person who was sinned against can forgive, even if the other person has not repented. Each of these can happen independently of each other. And the wonderful message of that is that neither of these people need to live under the hold of that sin. God has made it possible that each of these are possible on their own. But for reconciliation to happen, both need to happen. There needs to be repentance, there needs to be forgiveness, and only then can reconciliation happen. And to me, the readiness to forgive 70 times 7 has been something I've really thought about. I don't believe that it means that we need to put ourselves in the same position, into that vulnerable position where we are hurt repeatedly in the same way by the same person. To me, it often requires more of a peeling back of the layers. It means that a particular sin... I can forgive on a superficial le level, and then as I forgive that superficial level, I realize there's a deeper level to it, which I then also need to forgive to carry on the process. And I'm going to use a, a safe kind of example. If somebody steals my phone, then initially I may say, oh, well, it's just a phone. I can forgive that person for, for taking my phone. They probably needed it. It's okay. I'll, I'll forgive them. And then I suddenly realize I don't have all my contacts. I've lost so much of my relationships with people, with others, because of the fact that my phone has been stolen. So now I need to forgive that level as well. I need to forgive that person who has robbed me of relationships that I really valued. And yes, I know I can probably get them back, but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time and then I go, oh my goodness, my time is precious to me. That person has robbed me of time. And then there's another level exposed that I need to forgive. So often in the process of forgiveness, we realize it's not a once-off thing, but it actually requires an ongoing work. But it does mean, once we have 
confessed and forgiven, that we can focus on each other now and on the current situation. So we no longer need to react. We can now respond because it is just you and me in this interaction. And I can actually look at you and what your needs are. <coughs> the past can be dealt with so that I have less triggers that crowd in on this, this current situation. The fishbowl is no longer important. Instead, it's the audience of one that I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about what God is thinking. And it is a challenge. I'm not saying this is easy, especially in conflict situations, because that's so often when there's so many feelings and your gut reaction is just to, to do things that uh, are not helpful. One of my children, just to give you an example, um, the nice thing is it's a, an example where I actually did it right for a change. <laughs> um, one of my children asked me, how does it feel to have wasted 16 years of your life. What would you do if somebody asked you that? What is your initial gut reaction to this? And my initial gut reaction was, who are you to say I've wasted my life, you little pipsqueak? But I didn't. I managed not to respond in that way. And let me just give you a little bit of context. I uh, homeschooled our children. So I put my career on hold. I did not work as an occupational therapist anymore. And I spent my time uh, with my children homeschooling them. And this child has quite a sense of direction and purpose for himself. So he, he's quite keen to go out and have a career and make it in the world. And how could I let go of that? That's one level of it. So when I was asked this question, um, and I'm sure there are many more layers, I asked myself, and then I asked him, like, why do you think that I wasted 16 years of my life? And I tried to say it in a nice, calm voice without <laughs> any of that aggro undertone, and try to find out what the underlying question or need was. And on the one hand, yes, it was about you know, what's important in your life and how can that not be important in your life. And on the other hand, I also felt that there was a question underneath it all, along the lines of, am I worth it? Or do you begrudge me the fact that you gave up your career to spend your time on homeschooling instead? Am I worth it? Am I valuable? Was it worth it for you? And if we hadn't had that kind of conversation, I don't think you know, we wouldn't have uncovered that, that kind of uh, interaction and that question. So that's responding. Moving on to shaming. Shaming gets replaced by affirming. Again, out loud, public, regular, in words and more. I don't know if you're familiar with the five languages of love. Any of those can be used to try and affirm um, a person and try and get across the message that they are loved. So that, as a result, people feel that they are enjoyed, they are accepted, they are capable, they are loved. Children can be enjoyed instead of feeling like they need to grow up very quickly. 
Head skills can be used for intellectual development and feelings are no longer scary because they are a sign of work to be done. They are a sign of relational work that needs to be done and sometimes they're a sign that there's some competency skill that needs to be developed because somebody feels anxious about doing something on their own. With Jesus' help, it is possible for wise choices to be made and for people to take responsibility for the consequences of their actions. I don't have the classic example of uh, you know, a mom sending off her child to school who forgets the lunchbox. Obviously, I homeschooled. But one Friday night, uh, we went out. I was driving the three children. One was going to a birthday party. One was going to a band practice at church. And the other was going to spend the night um, with a friend, and she had just injured herself and needed to do regular exercises. Of the three, the one going to the birthday party forgot the present. The one going to the band practice forgot his guitar. <laughs> and the one going away for uh, a sleepover forgot this elastic, the special elastic that she had to use to do her exercises. So I do believe that children learn lessons whichever what, way we go. If we are going to rescue them and make sure that they have all these things that they need, they will learn that we are, we are there to come to their rescue and their actions do not have meaningful consequences. So I said, I'm really sorry, but you are going to have to go to the party without the gift, to the band practice without the guitar, and you're just going to have to sleep over without doing the exercises. Because I really wanted my children to know that walking out of the house with their phones was not the way to leave the house. You needed to actually spend a bit of time remembering, what was it that I actually needed to take with me? Where am I going and what am I doing on the other end? <laughs> so yeah, I think we, we need to be aware of what lessons we are teaching our children. So that was shaming. And lastly... Instead of egocentricity, everyone matters. So this means that we can focus on people and their needs more than on their behavior. Being is more important than doing. And give and take relationships are possible as a result. Expectations can be made clear and the truth can be spoken in love. This also means that problems can be seen as separate from people. So if we are having a problem meeting the budget, then it's not about you being impulsive or me being stingy or the other way around. It's actually about the fact that we're not, we have so much money and these are our needs. It's separate from us. Here we stand together in front of the problem. What can we do together to solve it? And because grace is sometimes messy, it landed up like that on our slide. And now the big question, how do we move from the one side of this to the other? How do we move from the curse to grace? I think we start with the fact that we need to accept where we are. We need to recognize that there is a problem. <clears throat> we need to break that don't talk about the problem rule and be ready to confess our role to God and to others. 
We need to be prepared to start the journey of change, both inside us and in our relationships. And the biggest change is bringing our deepest needs to God and turning to him as our source of life because he loves and accepts, values us, and gives us identity. And he has done the work that we can rest in. And this requires an ongoing transformation of our minds, but this is God's job. We are transformed. It is not us working hard at trying to transform our minds. But really what it means is looking again and again to him as our source, and then we can be a resource to others. A helpful verse that, um, well, there's many, but this is one from Ephesians 15, verse 18 to 21. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the context <clears throat> of these pa this passage is that it comes at a party that is, is directed to the whole church. So later on, Paul starts talking to individuals and how they need to submit to each other. But right here, he's talking to everybody. And he tells everyone to be filled with the Spirit. And apparently, I, I'm not a Greek scholar, but apparently... This verb is a continuous passive verb, which means you continue doing it daily. It's not an intellectual ascent to, I need the Spirit. Obviously, I'll need the Spirit all my life, but it's actually a daily, continuous um, being filled with the Spirit. It means realizing my need of God, that I can't do this on my own, and relying on God to develop my character in line with the new creation that he has already given me, that he has already made me. I don't know, I think it was me who coined this phrase in our Bible study. It's about becoming who we are. And this is also the foundation of everything that follows. This being filled by the Spirit is a foundation of right relationships with God, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father, it is also the, the basis for speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and encouraging each other. And not trying to get my needs met by the other person. And I think it ends with that further step, which is only possible because of what comes before, which is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And again, this is directed at the whole church. So all of us, in the church, all of us in Christ's body are called to submit to each other. Now, the author's definition of submission is one that I, I also find very challenging. He says, submission is making available to you what is unique about me to enable you to become the person that God created you to be. I'm going to read it again. Submission is making available to you what is unique about me to enable you to become the person that God created you to be. So I find this more challenging than the idea of submission as a doormat. This is not about submission as a doormat. 
This is about sharing my perspective because of the personality that I am, because of the way God has created me, that I have a view that is different to you. It might be more creative. You might be more academic. Mine might be more practical. It's a different view that I can share with you because of who I am. It also means that my talents and abilities I can use to support whatever work you're doing in the church. So if I, um, if I have, I'm good at hospitality, then I can make the venue look really nice and welcoming and be part of the, the team that welcomes people in when you decide you'd like to organize an event. So in different ways, we can support each other and we can submit to each other and help each other to flourish more fully. <clears throat> and what this basically does is that it takes us back to the beginning. So because of Jesus and his cross and my experience of his forgiveness and my being able to fill my needs with him, our relationships again can be changed. And they can be restored partly now on earth, but perfectly when he comes in glory and reigns over the new earth and the new heavens. So there is hope in, on this road, on this uh, journey that we are on together and with him. And I would also just like to uh, point you to, to this other book by Jeff van Fonderen, which is called Tired of Trying to Measure Up. I think we can, I think it's such a good title. <laughs> I think it's so easy to identify with it. You know, wherever you are, if you're just trying to be good and, yeah, just tired of just trying, it really speaks, it speaks to, to all of us. And he, he's very practical in that book as well. Um, his main emphasis is also about finding, um, bringing our innermost needs to God and looking to him to be the source of life. But he also gets, um, has some really practical exercises and ideas that, that are helpful in terms of just helping us realize where we are and changing our thinking patterns. A part of, I suppose, transforming our minds, which, yes, is mainly done through the Bible, but sometimes practical things can also help because we are embodied people. <laughs> There's also another book that I'd like to recommend which, by him, which uh, I don't have here, but it's called The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse, which he co-authored, and that is particularly looking at abuse of power in the church, which I think is something we really do need to be open about and talk about and, yeah, and allow healing and change. Okay, that's all I have to say at this point. So... Thank you very much, Vera. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a few minutes and you can speak to the person next to you and you can just have your initial thoughts and reactions and bounce them off each other and maybe just discuss what stuck out to you or what caught your attention or... 
yeah, what you found compelling, maybe, and then um, maybe a question as well, maybe questions plural that it raises for you. And then when we, in a few minutes' time, maybe I'll give you three or four minutes, and then at the end, maybe five minutes, see, see how, how excited we are talking to each other. And then we can come back together and you can offer some of those questions to Vera and we can sort of have a group discussion. So take a few minutes now and just speak to one another about, or just think about what you've heard and what your question might be. Thanks. Okay, everyone. I'm glad they have so much to talk about from that lecture. Let's, um, <coughs> let's, let's all, let, let's all have the one, now, now we'll have the one conversation. Um, I'm glad that, that you're immersed with each other after that, but yeah, let's, let's all, um, come back together. And, um, Fira, thank you again. Thank you so much. There was a lot in that. Um, listening to that as a parent was certainly convicting. And mm. I could see myself in, in a lot of what you were saying. Um, even, even a little bit on the left-hand side, too. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. That was a joke. That was a joke. Please, that was definitely a joke. Um, but it is interesting, you know, as you listen to something like that, it's easy to react with sort of shame, I guess. Mm. I just mm. wondered if you'd mm. like to comment on, on that. Even that reaction could, could be... Um, continue because I, I mm -hmm. thought it was brilliant I, uh, the way you said um, I think it's the thing that stuck with me the most in the lecture was where you said we're not called to live out the curse in a more spiritual way <laughs> sort of mm -hmm. spiritualize mm -hmm. the curse a bit but yeah. still be in still be ultimately stuck in the curse patterns of the curse that was mm -hmm. that was very profound I mm -hmm. think and mm -hmm. but even my reaction to it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think perpetuation of the curse in some way. Yeah, I, I think for me, the first the first time I read the book, that is definitely how I felt. Very convicted and also, yeah, full of shame. And then what happened was that in my interactions, what happened after that was not that I was radically changed and that I got it all right, but that I heard alarm bells in my head <laughs> when I was doing exactly the shame or the curse-filled thing. And I think that's where we start. It's becoming more aware of what's going on and realizing, oh, where is that coming from? And it's probably coming from me trying to suck life from something else rather than receiving the life that is in God. So it points me back to him. And another thing that I've noticed about um, when I've spoken to people about the book and if I've given it to friends is that there's also the danger of almost applying the book in the curse-filled way as well. That now the book becomes something that you try and make other people do. <laughs> and you, you know, like, why do people not get this? And why are they not living in a grace-filled way? So it's, it's really amazing how we just can perpetuate. Or even beating yourself with the book. And, yeah, beating yourself with the book or others. Or others. Yeah, yeah. No, I think we, it's, it's quite a cycle to get, get out of. Would anyone like to ask Vera a question from what we've heard? Yeah. 
This one. Tired of trying to measure up. I like that was a succinct question and answer. the most efficient, speaking of your German heritage, most efficient question we've ever had. That example of kids not having the right thing is Okay, so if I was shaming them for doing that, then I would have shouted at them about how stupid they were or how inconsiderate they were making me drive back and then I would have taken the consequence. So the important thing is that they had to take the consequence. Now, it's not within my control whether that consequence is going to be shaming or not because that depends on the reaction of the other people that are involved. And I, I cannot take responsibility for that. I can hope that they won't be shamed, but yeah, that's other people's stories. Does that help? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There was another question, yeah? Yeah. yeah? Um, going back to your first three questions, mm. Um, I thought somehow you were going to bring in in again, but it implies that the, sub, the, the person that's asking the question is right and the other person is wrong. Isn't it? Everyone is saying, you know, if I say this, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. so it, it's, it implies that the person asking the question is absolutely right and everyone else is. And now, at the end of the at the end of the lecture, looking back, what would you say about that? What would I say? Well, mm. I would say it's it's inaccurate because it's not uh, everybody. No, no one, well, it's the old thing. No one is perfect. Yeah. But you know, yeah. if you start criticizing when you criticize someone else, it assumes that you assume that you are right. Whereas 99% of the time you're not. Were well, these the questions? These were the questions, yeah. yeah, these three. So if we have a look at what would need to happen for me to be a happy person. Yeah, even if others. That's oh, the one that struck me. The, the last one. Yeah. Well, you know, if I'm not happy, why is it someone else's problem? Why mm. is it my problem? Right. Mm. Why? Mm. Yeah. I've got that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, that's the point, that we often think only if something happens, if somebody meets our need, if something changes, then we will be happy. But actually, that depends not on other people meeting our needs. And this, these questions are questions that are asked by people who are looking for others to meet their needs. <laughs> Someone else in my life. Mm -hmm.
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right. There was there was a hand here just now. Uh, yeah, I, I had a question. Actually. Mm. Um, so I was kind of struck by something you're saying about describing the curse and how like often our reactions to some of those behaviors can just become maybe we're trapping ourselves, trying to hide behind a facade of some mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can definitely recognize some of that in myself. Um, when I've been in a situation where I guess you're in a wider culture, maybe like an institutional culture, where there's kind of more particular ways of doing things or saying things, might not necessarily be very grace. Mm-hmm. Grace mm-hmm. should be put out of line. Um, but nonetheless, that is the way things are done. And code is very much the language that people communicate in. Mm. And so I think, I guess, what I struggle with is um, can there not be some naivety to say, oh, well, I'm just going to go in there and just kind of piss on the child of Christ and say what I think and, and, and act without inhibition um, when the culture will essentially turn around and respond in a way that will probably wind up with me being, I was thinking more in a work context, mm-hmm. torpedo my career. Like is there, um, or it could be like a school situation where you just wind up, you know, no one wants to be your friend or something mm-hmm. like that. So I guess mm-hmm. is, there, is there something in between where you like, well, this is the reality that I'm in, and I have to navigate that, and I can't be, you know, I guess completely detached from that, but I also don't want to compromise on, I guess, the great side of things. Like, is there, how, how would you, would you give any thoughts on how you mm. manage some of those mm. realities without re- retracting into the cursed behaviors? Mm. I, I think that, um, you know, that, that is our reality. We often continue to live in situations where other people are not living like this. And even sometimes in families where, you know, we look at this and we go, oh, I want to live out grace. But other people around us are continuing to live out the curse. And the thing is that we, we, are, not, we are not supposed to control their behavior to make them change. We can only look at our own behavior. And if we are trying to control them or if we are holding unforgiveness over them or reacting to, to them or to what they are saying or doing um, and shaming them and being egocentric, th- those are the things that we need to be looking at. What are we doing? So I don't think that you know, we're supposed to make them behave in a graceful way. But we ourselves can still, we don't have to um, you know, be that transparent and vulnerable that we get hurt, but we don't have to control them. We don't have to shame them. Does that, does that help? Or we don't have to unforgive them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the, you know, that, uh, yeah, being forgiven people mm-hmm. who are behaving mm-hmm. in a way that might be culturally, like in, in that say, among the expected, but... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. person but I think my my question was so I, I think that I think that's right that's a hard mm-hmm. thing to do mm-hmm. and I've struggled with that as well um, but I think it's more like how do you outwardly respond in those situations 
without just, I guess, making yourself, I think you kind of touched on it, more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, because if you, there's reasons why this, these cultures form, the expectation that you are going to mirror those behaviors um, if you need to be able to socially navigate that space. So how do you, I guess, how do you navigate that outwardly um, without compromising? I think that's the, what I sort of struggle mm. with a little mm. bit. Could you give, come up with a specific example? Because I get the feeling you're thinking of something yeah. specific. So, so you talk about like code for someone speaking yep. code. So if, you know, there are ways to tell people that their ideas are bad, right? <laughs> okay. And there are different ways to do that right. um, depending on the culture that you're in. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, maybe the culture I come from would be like, I think that's a bad idea. And that might be the expectation. If you dance around it, the person would be like, why are you dancing around mm -hmm. it? You're not taking me seriously. That could be like the pitfall in that culture. Mm -hmm. But you take a different culture where you don't directly challenge people that way. You have to be a bit more subtle in how mm -hmm. you do it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it in that subtle way, it's not really, not really being honest and you're dancing around it, but you still have to pick up the code and you using the code because everyone's in, you know, in that operating that outer perimeter. Mm. So you almost have to go into that outer perimeter to communicate with people, mm -hmm. even though that's those are cursed behaviors. Do you see what I mean? Mm. Um, so that, that's a bit what I struggle with is like sometimes do you almost are you almost forced into performing mm. because that otherwise you're just going to wind up either really rocking the boat or just be a pariah. Because that's what everyone else is doing. Mm. I think um, maybe the word code needs to be looked at in more detail. So coming from a German culture and living in South Africa, um, I think this is one of our challenges because German culture is very direct. We just mm. say it how it is. But in South Africa, none of the cultures there are like that. Mm. And I don't think that all of the code is necessarily um, sinful. Sometimes um, it's just a different way of doing things. Like, um, and, and there are some things that I think we, so we need to think very carefully about what can we adopt and what can we go with that um, is to a certain extent using the code, but it's not actually... Um, being controlling or shame-based. So, um, I mean, one of the things is just the emphasis on relational, um, yeah, on relationships compared to the emphasis on tasks. So it's very important to greet people. It's very important to have a conversation about how they are and their family and where they've come from before you actually get to the point. Now, if I'm following that code, that's fine. That's just my way of... Um, embracing the diversity of the place that I live in. Uh, and actually, so, uh, I, but I'm not sure if I've got to what, to, what no, you're touching you on. Did, yeah, mm, like okay. Be, we sit between, like, so maybe some, some performance is okay mm. because it's a way of showing respect. Mm. Um, or just communicating to people in the way that they're assumed to be yeah. communicated to. Yeah. Um, but maybe it can go too far. Mm. You're, mm. you know, being a passive aggressive, perhaps in that way, or, or yeah. doing other things, kind of more of a 
Yeah. yeah so it, it does take yeah. a lot of self-awareness in terms of, yeah. you know, what am I doing now? Have I, have I not tried to use this code to manipulate them? Or am I using the code because it actually helps us to communicate and to understand each other yeah. better? Challenges, but it also brings life to every culture. Mm. But maybe I'm being a bit mm. romantic about it. But I think that it can also be quite challenging when you are not letting yourself be <coughs> controlled, when you're not, ex you're not um, reacting in the expected way of the person who is used to having everybody under his control. So I'm not saying that it's going to be you know, a path of, of no challenges and no conflicts. Um, because somebody who's, like you said, toxic, in a toxic environment, um, if they don't have power over you anymore, then yeah, they might not respond very well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if part of the answer mm. to that um, is found... And sometimes I've also found that just listening without necessarily saying something also brings in something new into the room. Um, yeah, that it's, it shows a sign of respect and I'm not trying to control or manipulate. So I'm spending most of my time listening. Yeah. I'm so thrilled there are more questions in the room. I saw a bunch of hands a moment ago. Just before we take our one from the room, Torsten, are there any questions from the chat? Mm -hmm. Not at this stage. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Good to know. Just wanted to give the people on Zoom a chance also if they had questions. Um, but there were some other hands up a moment ago. Some, maybe someone, Corinne, we come back to you. Maybe someone who hasn't asked a question already, but then we'll come back to you. Although your question was <laughs> very short. <laughs> And then to you, Corinne. Yeah. This is just been another thought in response to that question. Um, I was thinking, well, what would Jesus do? Because um, didn't he say?
sometimes ask another question rather than say something which would be explosive or mm. have a bad reaction. Mm. Maybe just turn one's thoughts by asking something else along you know, the lines of the topic. Or mm. And sometimes it also helps to ask a question about, or in, internally maybe, not externally, but to ask yourself, what need is this person trying to meet with this behavior? And that's also just helpful in trying to understand them better, and perhaps also in how to respond. Mm. So what comes to mind, just listening to what you're saying, is um, we, we often don't ask what their expectations are in a specific setting. And I, especially if I am somewhere where I am from a different culture, I, I haven't actually found people reacting negatively if I have asked, you know, so what, what do people actually expect of somebody like me in this context? And usually people are quite open about sharing that. 
And that is also a helpful question to ask in any relationship. Is, you know, so I just, at the beginning of this, before I do anything, put my foot into it, I just like to know what are the expectations? What expectations do you have of me? And then you also often can have the opportunity to say, well, you know, I would actually also have an expectation of you and to make that clear. It's when we don't speak about those expectations that's when we start running into trouble, when we assume that we know or we try and pick them up from people's responses. It's much better to just really try and find out in words. Mm. And he looks at lots of different cultures, how they interact, how they come to decisions, and um, it's fascinating. You know, mm. like the, the Finns think that somebody who talks a lot is rather stupid, and people of few words are very wise, and the Italians think the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so there's sort of negotiations going on. Yeah. They just fall apart. Mm. So uh, uh, he's very very experienced and he's yeah. about eight languages. And, uh, and I think in cultures, but in our personal relationships, yeah. just yeah. having some clarity about expectations yeah. just helps, mm. helps us all. Yeah. Cultures otherwise known as our marriages, Well, I think then it's probably a good idea to get this book. <laughs> Which is tired of trying to measure up. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because he really speaks about a place of rest and not trying to, to just work ourselves into getting things right. Yeah, and having that wearing, well, bearing that extra load because that's not what Jesus said that we would have to do. Thank you, Pierre. <laughs>